Well, good morning, Four Corners. Blessing to gather with God's people, to praise Him, to pray to Him, and to hear His Word read and preached. Those last words of that song there, that God is a consuming fire. What an incredible thing that this God, who is a consuming fire, holy in splendor, is our Father. That when we come to Him, He never ceases to be a consuming fire. He never ceases to be the holy God who hates sin and punishes sinners. And yet, through Christ, we approach Him boldly, not just Now, we don't approach him trembling. We approach him boldly as sons and daughters. Praise God that we do that this morning as Christians, those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And I put out there for you today that uh, this may be the opportunity today where the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, moves on your heart and gives you the gift of faith whereby you turn to Christ And trust in him. Seek that. Pray to God. Seek that. Ask that he would be merciful to you. You know, that's the first approach we have towards God is we cry out like the tax collector. We say, be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. That's the only way we can approach this God who is a consuming fire. If you would turn with me to Genesis 39. Genesis 39. We are on the final stretch of Genesis. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at the narrative of Joseph and his brothers. And this story of Genesis, well-known story, begins in chapter 37. Joseph, we are told, is his father's favorite son. That's never a good idea for a parent to have a favorite We love our kids the same or should seek the Lord's grace for that. But nonetheless, Jacob, going along with what we've seen in the family before, has his favorite. And that favorite is his son, Joseph. And Joseph has been having these strange dreams. So not only is Joseph his father's favorite, exalted in the mind of his father, but Joseph is also... He is also having these dreams where he sees himself lifted up and his brothers bow down to him. And so both of these things are going on. And his ten older brothers, he's got one younger brother named Benjamin, but his ten older brothers hate him because they are jealous of him. They envy him. They do not like their brother. And in fact, they want to kill him. But they end up selling him into slavery. Through the providence of God, Joseph is not killed by his brothers. He's not slaughtered on his approach to his brothers as they're shepherding in the field. Instead, they sell him into slavery to a group of passing traders. Then, to make matters worse, these brothers dip the robe, the robe that his father had given him. They dip that robe, torn. They dip it in goat's blood. And they go back to their father and they say, is, is this, this is your son's, right? So they insinuate that Joseph has been torn to pieces by wild animals. And then last week in chapter 38, the spotlight fell on one of these brothers in particular. So in many ways, you know, as I've been going through this, I've realized that the latter part of Genesis is not just the story of Joseph. It is the story of Joseph and his brothers. It's all of them involved in this story. And and when you see it in that light, that little introduction of Judah last week where we went down that road with Judah makes a little more sense. The spotlight fell last week on the patriarch Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. He's the leader of his brothers, the one who had suggested They sell Joseph rather than leave him in the pit to die. The one through whom the kings of Israel will come. And most importantly, the one through whom the Christ will come. Christ is in the line of Judah. And and he is also, therefore, in the line of David. Or I should say he's in the line of David. And therefore, he's in the line 
of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And what we saw last week was Judah's descent. We saw at the beginning of chapter 38 that Judah descended geographically. And when we find these little, these little notes, they're indicators of larger themes that are going on. And what we read at the beginning of chapter 38 is that Judah descends geographically in the land. But this geographical descent is meant to point us to his spiritual descent. So on the hills of selling his brother into slavery and lying to his father about it, he unites himself with the wicked Canaanites. He casually marries one of the Canaanite women and produces two evil sons through her. These sons are executed by the Lord. The first time we read of something like this happening in the Bible, he treats Tamar, his daughter-in-law, unjustly and then inadvertently sleeps with her thinking that she is a cult prostitute. I won't elaborate. I know it's the fifth Sunday. We have our children here with us, but you get the point. This is most certainly a descent. Not just a geographical descent, but a spiritual descent. And in all of this, Moses is showing us where the family is headed. Remember, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the author of Genesis. And he is showing us where this family, this this chosen family, this blessed family, this covenant family, the only family on the planet... In this kind of relationship to the living God who said, let there be light. And there was light. This is where this family is headed. Judah, this brother, acts as a representative of all of the brothers. This is the trajectory of the brothers. And then we come to chapter 39. We come back to Joseph. After we've gone through the trenches, we've been down deep into the pit with Judah. We come back up into chapter 39 where we find a different descent. And that's the title for the sermon this morning, A Different Descent. Joseph also descends. This is fascinating when you see this. Notice what's going on here. Chapter 38 Judah descends geographically, and we see the moral and spiritual descent there. Joseph here, chapter 39, he also descends. He is brought down, we are told. Do you see that? He's brought down into Egypt. And he begins the narrative in slavery, and he ends the narrative in prison. This is a circumstantial Descent, worse than probably any of us could imagine. This is the descent of Joseph, but it is a different descent. He descends as a victim of his brother's hatred. Why is this a different descent? The story is bracketed by these words. Look at verse 2. And put your finger also on verse 21. Put your finger there on verse 2 and on verse 21. These, these wondrous words that make all the difference in the world. Listen, the Lord was with Joseph. This is an altogether different descent. Not that the Lord was not with Judah, but that's not the emphasis of chapter 38. The emphasis of chapter 38 is the discipline, the spiraling out of control. We get this very emphatic note here. The Lord was with Joseph. So as the story of Joseph in Egypt begins here in chapter 39, and this really is the beginning of the story of Joseph in Egypt. We've had some Joseph's bits before where he was sold, but this is the beginning really of this chapter, you could say, of the story. We are seeing ascending in the midst of descending. No matter how much Joseph, notice this, no matter how much Joseph is pushed down, he will rise up. And I was thinking this week about what was it about the Joseph story that captured me most when I was a child? 
What, what section of it? And I really do think it was this section as I was meditating on it, thinking about this, because it, it, it fascinated me that here is this man who's just receiving all of these blows from the world. And he just keep, keeps rising and rising and rising in the midst of all that he faces. He's pushed down, but no matter how much he is, he will rise up because the Lord is with him. And I want to say this to you this morning, Christian. This is, this is incredible. This is the life of every single Christian. What you must see here, as you see Joseph here descending and yet ascending, you need to hear this, child of God, this is this typifies the life of every single believer. In Matthew 1, 23, Jesus is referred to as Emmanuel, God with us. Christ has come, sent by the Father. As we often read in the Gospel of John, he has come and he has dwelt with us as God's temple, as God's tabernacle. He is with us and he is in us. When Christ ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of the glorified Christ, called the Spirit of God, called the Spirit of Christ, the third person of the Trinity, sent by the Father and the Son to dwell in the hearts of God's people. God is with us even more intimately than he was in this story with Joseph. We are called temples of the living God. Temples of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 31 to 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Maybe you're in the pit. Maybe you're descending. You feel as though life is just beating you up. It's just one blow after another. If you are a Christian, you need to see your story in this mirror of Joseph's story. Because we know, as believers, that all of our descending will be part of our ascending. Our resurrection, growth in Christ, eternal life reigning with this Christ. If you would please stand with me. At this time, we're going to go ahead and read God's word. Genesis 39, verses 1 to 23. This is God's inspired and infallible word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But, I love that word in the Bible. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, He was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. If you would, go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his blessing on our time together today as we go into his word. That the Holy Spirit would illuminate the word for us. That we would look to Christ and trust In God, through him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning that we have your word. We gather here, and Lord, undoubtedly, some of us are busy-minded, God. Thinking about what went on this morning, or what's going on this afternoon, or staring at something on the wall or the floor or whatever, Lord, we're just prone to distraction, so feeble. Lord, would you be gracious to us this morning and would you hold fast our faces to Christ, to your word? Would you, as we often do with our little children, would you tenderly put your hands upon our cheeks and point our eyes Towards yourself, that you may speak to us, God. Change us. Sanctify us. Lord, some of us here today may be unsaved, trying to please you through good deeds, trying to find a, a path on our own, through our own reason, through our own influences just trying to make it through the world our own way, hoping it all works out in the end. Father, would you crush, would you shatter those false ideas, those deceptions, and would you point all of us to the only hope we have in life and death, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Father, would we see him lifted up high? Would we be drawn to him, all of us, Would we submit to him as Lord? Would we build our houses on the rock that when the storm comes, we would not fall? Would we not be like chaff that the wind drives away, but would we be like the tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, that prospers in all that it does? Much like we read here with Joseph. Father, help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do we see happening in this very different descent? Very different from the one we read last week. Well, three things we see happening this morning here in this descent. Number one, 
Joseph is prospered in slavery. Number two, he is protected from sin. And number three, he is preserved through slander. So let's look at each of these as we go through God's word. So first, prospered in slavery. And I want to reread verses one to six here so that we can really focus our minds on what God has for us in these verses. So verses one to six, the first part of verse six. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Everywhere we look. Everywhere we look in this opening section of verses. We see the language of prosperity. Sometimes when you're preparing a sermon and you're trying to divide up the text, it's a little difficult to figure out how the text divides up and how it can be taught. It's a little difficult to figure out what the individual sections are about in relation to what the whole passage is about. And any of you who have taught the Bible know the difficulty sometimes in that. Well, it is easy to figure out what verses 1 to 6 are saying. It is abundantly clear. It took about one minute through reading these verses. Everywhere we look here, we see the language of prosperity. Success, favor, promotion, elevation, advancement, blessings. All over the place. And we've become accustomed to this sort of language, right? With Abraham, with Isaac. And with Jacob, we've seen this over and over and over again. And we are meant to draw that connection. We are meant to go back and remember that that this is God's workings among his covenant people. Joseph is serving as a slave. We must never forget that. He is a slave. He is not a free man. His master can do with him whatever he pleases. Period. Whatever he pleases. Serving as a slave under one of the officials of Pharaoh, a man named Potiphar. And over time, his master notices that everything Joseph touches turns to gold. He's got other servants, but there's something different about this particular one. This Hebrew servant whom he bought from the Ishmaelites. There's something very different about him. Everything he does works out. There's achievement at every juncture for this man, Joseph. He's blessed in all of his endeavors. So within the house, wherever Joseph is, there is success. Joseph's in the kitchen. Things are going well in the kitchen. The other guys, not so much. Joseph's there. It's going well. And this, of course, draws the favor of his master. He is benefiting greatly from having Joseph around. And, and this, is, this is moving off onto him, right? Because he owns Joseph. Joseph is his slave. Meaning Joseph's success is Potiphar's success. So he grows to like Joseph. And even more, he places him as the head of the house. Now I love this. As you're walking through the Joseph narrative, you see these stepping stones. And it's just incredible to miss God's providence and that God is able to do this. God is able to do this. He's able to do anything he pleases. He sees all. He knows all. He works in the affairs of people at every level. First stepping stone, we have him elevated to the very top in Potiphar's house. Elevated second stone to the very top of the prison. And then the third stone, elevated to the very top of Egypt. Yes, the Egypt. The famous Egypt. 
the world-renowned Egypt of the pyramids and the pharaohs. This Egypt. God put him from slave to the top. It's an incredible story. And it begins here. We begin to see it here. As he gains the, the recognition or gains the favor of his master and is elevated by him. Verse 4, he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Verse 6, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. This guy just checks out. He checks out of everything dealing with his house because he knows Joseph's got it. Those of you who maybe run a business or you're a manager and maybe you have employees who you read this and you think that's so-and-so. It's someone that just makes your job a lot easier because they just get it done. You don't ever have to worry about it. You don't ever have to think about it. You don't have to micromanage them. You don't have to follow up with them. You don't have to send these reminder emails. It just happens and it happens wonderfully. So you know what this feels like for Potiphar. That's what's going on with Joseph. He literally trusts Joseph with his whole life. Everything. And as I said in the introduction, all of this is the direct result of God's presence with Joseph. Look at the connection here in these verses. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Look at the connection. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. You see the direct link. Look at verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. This is not chance. This is not Joseph's ingenuity, his wisdom, his great intellect. This is God causing things to happen. The sovereign king of the universe making the cause and effect relationships between Joseph's lips and Joseph's hands and Joseph's feet and everything in his purview work. God is causing all of this. We also see that God is glorifying himself among these unbelievers. We, must, we can't forget that when God brings his people out of Egypt, it, we see this repeatedly. God is not just focused on his people. It's an amazing story in the Exodus. When, when God is bringing his people out of Egypt, he's not just focused on that Israel may know that I am the Lord. That Israel may know that I am great. That Israel may know that I am God. But he does this to glorify himself among the Egyptians as well. And we know that Egyptians come out with the Israelites. Some of them decide to go and turn away from all that they've known in their life and go out into the middle of the wilderness with God's people because God has been exalted and magnified among these non-Hebrews. We see that here. God is glorifying himself among these unbelievers. We've seen that throughout with Abimelech and Pharaoh in the past. And we saw that with Laban. Connect all of these dots. What we see is that God is a God who does not restrict himself to a people. He is the God of all people. And through Christ, the gospel goes out to all the nations. So that every tribe and tongue and nation will exalt the Lord in the new heaven. And the new earth. God has a global orientation in his grace. Calvin, commenting on the giving of these gifts to Joseph, says that no good flows except from God who is the fountain. Speaking of Joseph's success, his prosperity, no good flows except from God. And this reminds us that as Christians, everything we have, hear this Christian. Undoubtedly, some of us this morning are elevated in our own hearts about ourselves. Maybe some of you this morning think that you really are doing great and you've achieved so much and you woke up this morning feeling on top of the world and just, just bathing yourself. You're in the shower, but you're bathing your heart in your successes. You are proud of who you are and what you have become. What you've achieved, what you've accomplished, 
This story reminds us that everything we have, all of the spiritual growth and blessings that we've enjoyed were ordained by God. Hear this, ordained by God, purchased by Christ and measured out to you by the Holy Spirit. Nothing you have, nothing you have, you did. God is the reason for every ounce of blessing in your life, period. So let that pride just go right down the drain. Because if God were to take his hand off your life or God were were not to ordain those things, you would crumble. None of you, none of us is strong enough to where we would not crumble into a pile of nothingness without the Lord. Pride is crushed in a story like this. In short, it is because the Lord is with you. If he left you, As I said, you would crumble. If the Lord had not been with Joseph, he would have wasted away. You have to see that God makes all the difference in this story. This is not a story of luck. There is no luck. There's a sovereign God. And we read this story. We see that if God would have not would not have been with Joseph, he would be a nobody in history. He would have wasted away in slavery. Would have been nothing in the house of Potiphar. Everything we read is because of the hand of the Lord. God left us. We would crumble. But here are the promises held out for us in the gospel. He will not leave us. That's the wonderful promise that is held out for every Christian. So this morning you think, oh, maybe God will leave me. He won't leave you. If you belong to Christ, if you're a Christian, he will never, ever ever, ever leave you. And maybe this morning, as we were going through the the confession of sin and your heart was weighed down, remember that after the confession of sin is the song of assurance. That we are reminded, yes, that, that we are weak and we are feeble and we sin, but we come to God, we confess our sins with the contrite heart. He forgives us our sins and cleanses us. He restores us. He will never leave us. Hebrews 13, 5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Quoting a passage in Deuteronomy in Matthew 28, 20. Jesus' last words, some of his last words to his disciples. What does he say? I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, guess what? Peter, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, they did not live on earth till the end of the age. Jesus is speaking to his church, all of God's people represented there in the little church, the apostles. And he is saying to all of us, I am with you till the end. I will never, ever leave you. Another thing to see, as a Christian, there is nothing that can happen to you that God can't bless and turn for good. This is a wonderful passage for this reason. Many reasons. But one of the reasons this passage is so wonderful and edifying to the Christian is that it reminds us that there is absolutely no evil that can befall you. Hear this. This takes away all fear. There's no evil that can befall you that God cannot Turn for good and bring blessing in the midst of it. Let me say it this way. That God won't. Not that he can. He can, but he may not. No, no. There's nothing as a Christian that could happen to you. Fill in the blank. Your worst fears. Fill in the blank. Nothing. In which God cannot and will not bless and turn for good. Child of God. Finally. I want you to notice that Potiphar's entire house is blessed because of Joseph. Remember chapter 12, verse 3, when God first came into the life of this family in Abraham, and he said, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what are we reading here? Joseph, a descendant of Abraham, is just a conduit of all these blessings in the house of this pagan unbeliever. And that reminds us of Christ. That Christ, the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of Jacob, 
Through him, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in that sense, we are like Potiphar, as Christ is like Joseph. So that's the first thing we need to see, is Joseph is prospered in slavery. But now we come, secondly, to the fact that he is protected from sin. Look at verses 6 to 12, the latter part of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. That's an amazing statement for a slave in this kind of person's house. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men in the house of the house were there, was there in the house, she called him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And I want to stop there. Here we have a classic story of the seductress. We get this mentioned several times in the book of Proverbs. The seductress, the uh, adulterous seductress at that. Potiphar's wife, one of the notorious individuals of the Bible. She is infatuated with Joseph, filled with lust And a desire to be with him. She is attracted to him. He is handsome in form and appearance. Verse 7. And after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. And said lie with me. Reminiscent of Eve right? Eve she, she looked at that fruit. Here we see all throughout the Bible. The eyes are connected to the heart. And the body is connected to the eyes. And where the eyes go the body follows. That's what we have here with Potiphar's wife. Part of the human condition after the fall. We saw it with Judah last week. Prostitute on the side of the road. These adulterous desires of Potiphar's wife are set up by two circumstances. First, Joseph has free reign of the house. She knows that. He is the man in charge. He goes and comes as he pleases. So there is much opportunity here to do as they please. Second, he is described similarly to his mother Rachel. Joseph is said here to be handsome in form and appearance. As one commentator put it, he's got Rachel's genes. And so he is an attractive person and he has drawn the affections of Potiphar's wife. And what we find in these verses are three attempts on the part of Potiphar's wife to seduce Joseph. And in each case, she is met with resistance, refusal, and resolve. Joseph will not do this wicked thing. He will not go down this wicked road. So let's look at each of these. To her first request, Joseph gives a lengthy response. He wants to lay that groundwork right there. He wants to shut this down. Leave no room for future conversation. Give a full discourse on why this is not happening. His master has put everything into his hands and elevated him to the highest level in the house. He has only withheld his wife from Joseph. Literally. You can have it. Everything is in Joseph's hand except for Potiphar's Wife. It's an incredible statement. So how can Joseph break his trust and also take the man's wife too? I want her too. 
So he concludes, verse 9, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So that's the first. Notice the pattern here. There's three. First, we get, we've get, we get this proposition that she makes, and we get Joseph shuts it down. Secondly, this initial attempt to sleep with Joseph is followed by a barrage of day after day attempts to seduce him. This is not a momentary uh, time to stand. Okay, I stood. I'm good. No, 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 no. no. She is right there in his ear, getting prettied up for him every day, trying to get his eyes on her. Day after day, be with me, be with me, be with me. Joseph's response, verse 10, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. So that's the second. We got the initial, then we got the constant barrage, and then thirdly, finally, we see a full attack. She's tired of waiting. She's just going to attack him. She has been working on him for many days, and he simply won't budge, so she tries a new approach one day when no one is around. And Joseph is carrying out his duties in the house, as he faithfully did all the time. She runs up and grabs hold of him, grabs hold of his garment. Verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. Joseph's response, verse 12. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. He fled from her as though he were running from a lion. And in fact, it was not a lion that tore up Joseph and his robe as it was brought to his father. But this woman is like a lion. She's ready to devour his soul. And so he sprints. He runs as fast as he can, clothes flying off to get away from this adulterous woman. And as we think about Joseph's refusal to fall to this seduction... And as we seek to apply it to ourselves, because there's many ways of coming at this story. How do, we, how do we apply this to ourselves? How do we think about what is going on here with Joseph? She tempts, Joseph resists. What do we do with this passage and how do we apply it to ourselves? And I think in order to do that rightly, we need to consider it from two angles. First, the what. We just simply need to look at the what. What? And I think Alan Ross is correct here when he says, the commentator Alan Ross, he says, the example of Joseph makes an excellent study on how to overcome temptation. And it's deeper than that, and we'll see that. But, but on one level, it is true that if you look at the way New Testament writers refer to Old Testament stories, there is often the appeal to look at that. Look at what happened there. Don't do that. Do that. So on, the very ba- on a very basic level, we have to look at the what. What does Joseph do here? He loves God and neighbor, as Jesus taught us, to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. He loves Potiphar. And he loves Potiphar's wife. By not allowing her to go into this sin of adultery. He refuses to even lie beside her. Notice that. How many of us, how many of you have been trapped because you just, you, you were willing to lie beside sin? You're willing to lie beside what it was that was, was there to devour you. I won't touch it, but I'll just kind of get comfortable next to it. And I'm sure to be fine. What a lie! What a deception. You and I, we both know that when you lay next to it, it eats you. That's what happens. He doesn't do that. He refuses, it says, to even lie beside her. Not even putting himself in a situation where he could fall. We see also that he held fast to the truth in the face of repeated temptations. No matter how many temptations and no matter how forceful and how repeated, he holds fast to the truth. This is resolve of the highest order. And then finally, he literally ran away from sin. 
I've mentioned this before, but there's a book that really impacted me in my early 20s by a medieval monk named Thomas Akempis. And he talks a lot. There's some stuff in there, you know, now, later on, after kind of coming to my own sort of theological identity as a Christian that I read and I go, uh. But there's much in there of profit. And one of the things that he constantly talks about is that when we wage war against Satan in Christ's strength, that, that we are not to even take one step in the direction of sin. Joseph could have said, he could have stood there and said, whoa, 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 your robe's coming off. Whoa, 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 what, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? No, 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 he ran, he fled. Give no opportunity to the devil. Zero, run, flee, get away. And that's what we see. But I want us to understand that all of this is meant to point us to Christ. Away from ourselves. Because here's the thing. You right now, some of you in this room being tempted even now in your life to adultery, to pornography, to, to fornication, sexual immorality of various kinds. You're being tempted even now in your life. And here's what you need to understand. You don't have what it takes to stand. Period. We don't have what it takes to stand. But Christ does. And Christ did. He stood. There there was a barrage on Christ that far surpassed what Joseph faced. And Christ said, as I used to tell my son when he was really little, no devil, no devil, no devil. When he's tempted in the wilderness, thus it is written, no devil. Only Christ has stood And unless Christ stands in your place before God and stands dwelling by his spirit in your heart, there will be no standing. You will fall. I will fall. But Christ has stood that we might stand. And in him, we can. Second, In addition to the what, and more importantly, I want us to see the why. This is very important for understanding what's going on here. The why. Why is it that Joseph stands up under this temptation? And I want to give you two words here, recognition and reverence. First, recognition. Joseph recognized all that God had done for him. And that God was with him. He also had before his eyes God's promises and God's plans. This temptation of Joseph, you know, oftentimes when we come to the Bible, we just take these stories totally out of context. Look how Joseph stood under temptation. Do what he did and you can do it too. But what we need to understand is that this story of Joseph standing up in the midst of temptation is backed by all of Genesis. It's backed by everything we've read. Joseph has been inundated with, especially being close to his father, inundated with the glory of God. His steadfast love and faithfulness, as Abraham's servant said. His mind has been filled with God's great plans and God's great promises. And now in his own individual life, he's seen God's great presence. That's what infuses all that goes into this rejection of temptation. In other words, his refusal to sin arose out of a recognition of God's grace. And I want to say this to you. Think about this for a moment. Let this sink into your mind. A grace-filled mind is the only way to avoid a sin-filled life. If your mind is not full, packed, jam-packed with God's promises, God's plans for you, God's all that God has told you He has done in Christ for you and will do for you in Christ, if you are not Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If those things are absent, you will fall and fall and fall and fall. Trying hard doesn't work. We know that. So how do we fight sin? Fill your mind with what God has done for you in Christ. Daily, minute by minute, Meditating on his grace. Joseph fights this temptation seeing all that's gone behind him and all that's been underneath him. 
And then reverence. Put simply, Joseph feared the Lord. Joseph feared the Lord. Maybe that's the problem is you, you, you're not fearing the Lord. You just really, the more we read the Bible, the more we see God, God's glory in his goodness and in his holiness. The last part I was talking about was his goodness. You read the Bible more and more. You see, oh man, he, he loves us. He's given us all these things. He promises in Christ. This is what he's going to do. He's going to raise me. I'm going to reign with Christ. I'm going to have eternal joy in his, in his presence. That's the glory of his goodness. But the Bible also gives us the glory of his holiness. Where people come to the mountain and, and they realize that is God up there. That is God, the Holy One. Who made heaven and earth, all the planets, the massive stars. We can't even see. He's holy, perfect. And Joseph feared the Lord. Psalm 51. He understood as David did that every sin one commits is against God. I've seen this in Leviticus over and over again. It's interesting that uh, in Leviticus, I've been reading Leviticus lately, and, and when, when you read that, oftentimes the Lord will say, fear me, fear the Lord, because you are to fear the Lord. And it's interesting, in those contexts, he's talking about laws that involve people, not doing unjustly to people. And why would we not do unjustly to our neighbor? Because you fear the Lord. So the relationship, it's interesting, the relationship, the way we fear the Lord is by treating people well. The way we fear the Lord is by loving our neighbor. And that's what we see here with Joseph. He has reverence for the Lord. If you are a Christian, you have the fear of the Lord deep in your heart. Jeremiah thirty-two forty says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Let me tell you this this morning. If you're not a Christian, you don't even know what I'm talking about right now because you don't fear the Lord. The Holy Spirit has to give you a new heart so that you will fear the Lord. And if you are a Christian, you do fear the Lord. If you don't fear the Lord, you're not a Christian. Now, I'm not saying if you don't fear the Lord perfectly because we falter, we fall. But hear this. Fearing the Lord is part and parcel of what it means to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Per Jeremiah, the new covenant, I will make their hearts to to fear me. So cry out to the Lord this morning. If you have no fear of God, And ask him to have mercy on you. In all of this resistance, recognition, and reverence, God protected Joseph from sin, from falling to the seductress. To use the words of Proverbs 6.24, God protected him from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Let's go finally to the third point this morning, and that is preserved through slander. Verses 13 to 23. Look at those with me. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. At the end of this story, we get a little replay We've seen this already. A little replay of Joseph's life so far. We have, once again, descending and ascending at the same time. His further descent happens through the slander of the adulterous woman. 
After Joseph flees, she notices, hey, I've got his garment here. Ha ha! So she says, I will lie about him. So out of spite and revenge, because she didn't get what she wanted from Joseph, she fabricates a story and frames him. She tells the servants that he had tried to come in and rape her, but had fled when she cried out. This Hebrew slave, this foreigner, had treated her as nothing. He had mockingly tried to assault her. She blasts her husband as being the one who brought this Hebrew into their home to do this thing to her. And hearing this, her husband Potiphar is enraged at Joseph. So in addition to the slanderous charges, Joseph is stripped of his status and position and once again thrown into the pit. You might be thinking at this point, man, this poor guy. Good grief. I mean, has anyone in here experienced this kind of adversity? I'm sure some of us have, but I mean, it's just like blow after blow after blow on Joseph's head. Once again, Joseph becomes the victim of hatred. He has done only righteously, and yet here he is thrown into the pit again. But now the story ends just as it began. The Lord was with him. The Lord gave him success in everything that he did, and the Lord elevated him. Verses 21 to 23. Same thing, different place. So what does this tell us? The efforts of those who wish to harm us can never rip us away. Hear this, Christian. The efforts of those who wish to harm you can never rip you away from God's steadfast love, his covenant-keeping love. Romans 8, 35 says it beautifully. We read this earlier. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? What? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, slander, being thrown into prison. What? Paul's emphatic answer in verse 37 is this. No. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. In all these things, in all these unjust sufferings, in all of these things we must endure, in all this hardship, in all this hatred, in all this adversity... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So why? Why did I entitle this preserved through slander? That preposition is important here. Why through slander? Well, there's two reasons given what the word through can mean. First, God was with him through this ordeal. Meaning that, that as he had to go through this, down this road, God was there with him through this ordeal. Notice this. He did not keep Joseph from slander. What? Hold on. God allowed Joseph to be slandered in this way? His reputation defiled? Yeah. God doesn't promise us protection from these sorts of things. God allowed Joseph to go through this, but God went through it with him. God doesn't promise you protection from things. He promises you forever that he'll be with you. That's his reassurance. So I use the word through for that reason, but I also use the word through for this reason. And I love this. It was by means of this slander. So through can also mean by means of. God did something through this. By means of something. It was also by means of this slander that Joseph was brought forward in God's plan. And thus preserved. And his family preserved. His brothers preserved. His father preserved. His descendants preserved. The line of Christ preserved. We preserved through this. The slander was itself a blessing. The slander was itself a divine gift by which God ensured that his plan for Joseph's good and Joseph's family's good and our good would come to pass. So what does this tell us? 
Our usefulness to the Lord, and we so need to hear this, our usefulness to the Lord may involve much hardship and mistreatment. Will we embrace that and trust in this sovereign Lord? God was with Joseph, and child of God, God is with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story, once again, of your faithfulness to your people. We thank you for how you prospered and preserved and protected Joseph. And how in that we see your prospering and protecting and preserving of our very lives, our souls, our eternity. We praise you this morning, God. We thank you for this time. We ask that you would work among us as we participate in the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.